and welcome back to all things turd chats as ever it's so nice to have you here and i hope that if you're not new here that these conversations i'm having with all my guests about turds and how they've visited them has given you some reassurance that no one swerves tricky life situations um i want to believe that You've allowed space for hope from these chats. Hope that there will be a glittery lesson from it all. It might be so hard to see that right now. Trust me, I know that feeling so well. Um, But it will be there. Anyway, I felt I needed to say that because it's apparent to me that a lot of people are going through all manner of turdy experiences right now. this time of year can be particularly hard for some people so I hope this chat is comforting. Um, My life with cancer feels particularly tricky right now so if this podcast isn't helping you it really bloody is helping me so there's that. Today's chat is a really special one with my long-term pal Fern Cotton. We had so much to talk about that Neil has had to actually create two parts to this chat. Um, In the same way, I didn't really feel I could or should introduce Fern. I don't really feel I need to introduce this chat. But suffice to say that we cover a lot of ground around her mental health and her inner critic and the perils of the media and then eventually finding her happy place. Um, My cat lady Marmalade felt the need to join our recording session too. Um, And when she's not begging me for food, you might hear her walking around on my laminate floor. Um, I actually think she sounds a bit like an angry typist, sort of ferociously typing away at an old typewriter in the corner. That's, That's the picture I've got in my head right now, actually. It's a really good job. Fern is as obsessed with cats as I am, really. Anyway, shall we get on and play the recording? Okay, let's. Usually I introduce my guests and I just don't think I really feel like I need to do that with you. So I, I thought about things that people might not know about you. The fact that you really detest green tea. Correct. That you're, I mean, I don't know, this might be a bit more obvious for people that know you quite well an introverted cat obsessive you're really good at buying presents for people like you're exceptional and you're so punctual with shit like that as well you're so organized yes I'm a Virgo correct yeah. you love Dave Grohl more than life and you will be in bed by nine yes if not half eight <laughs> even better best of all she's my mate and ever since, it was ever since she willingly ran a half marathon for Copperfield in 2011. And you haven't looked back, have you? I haven't. I haven't. Well, really, from the first moment I met you, because I, I met you at an awards thing, for a fancy awards ceremony yeah. many moons mm-hmm. ago. And you obviously stuck a sticker on me and then did a runner. <laughs> and we've just we've just been mates ever since. And we've had lots of sort of, you know, sort of serendipity with me going on a a walk with someone that you already knew, lovely Jenny, who was waxing lyrical about you. And it was, yeah, it was meant to be. It really was. And uh, now it's like 11 years later. Wow. So I think we should we should get into it. Like, tell me what your turd is, please. Okay. My turd 
is sort of a broad spectrum of things, but it comes under the banner of poor mental health. Mm. And that's not forever and it's not always, but certainly I've had periods of poor mental health and still I'm very much tripped up by um, sometimes the hangover of that period, but also um, just sort of other mental health scenarios that I've sort of encountered and still do. So that's very much been a sort of part of my life. I was going to actually say from the age of 30, but really when I look back, because I had um, eating disorders in my 20s, it really started at, at 19, I think, because the more I learn about eating disorders, that very much fits under the heading of mental health issue, which I, I sort of had pushed to one side for a bit. So I think that's been kind of my my nemesis, but also my gift in many ways as well. Yeah. <sighs> It's, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's something that you feel like you can live alongside, right? Because you've been you've had this for such a long time. You're constantly navigating life with it. Um, but when when you reckon it started around nineteen, but obviously you stepped into like a, a situation where you were in the limelight. You were being judged by a lot of people since you were fifteen, and and. Do you think that is where you started to look at or look at yourself in a way that was not healthy? Yeah, very much so. I mean, probably in a very, very subtle way at first because I was a kid Mm. and I had been, in my eyes, sort of plucked from obscurity. I, I was just living a regular life in the suburbs, like very just normal stuff I was doing, going to school, hanging out in the park with my mates. And then all of a sudden I was sort of a part of this world that I was so transfixed by. You know, I was obsessed with watching TV, like most sort of teenagers in the 90s and listening to pop music. And that whole world looked so magical to me. And it really felt it for quite a while. I think from 15, probably until about 19, because I was sort of on kids TV there then, which was a much gentler environment Mm. and a lot more protected and I was working with a team of producers that were so wonderful I mean they're you know Maddie who was my first ever TV producer is still in my life today and someone that I will always be so grateful for taking a chance on this sort of random 15 year old Um, and we were really nurtured and looked after but I think there was there were probably incremental moments during that time of probably like not processing what was going on around me, mm-hmm. but just sort of in fight or flight dealing with it. And I didn't feel any anxiety at that period of my life. I, I didn't struggle at all. Um, I was just sort of going through it. But, I, you know, I was obviously um, exposed to this sort of weird critique judgment that again was much more diluted back then because we didn't have social media so it was it was really only like tidbits of information that you would get you wouldn't get full-on written commentary it was just sort of sometimes passing comments from people that you knew which you know didn't really affect me too badly but I was certainly then aware of that and that kind of you almost view yourself as a spectator as well it's really strange Mm -hmm. and I you know I still do that today I sort of can see myself 
from an outside point of view in in a in a warped way. Um, but I think also, you know, I was for as a young teenager, I was also meeting all of these sort of little pop stars who looked all perfect and shiny and they had stylists and makeup artists and a whole team of people around them. And, you know, and back in the day when I was on the telly at that age, I'd literally rock up, I'd wear some awful clothes I'd bought from Wembley Market and um, and you'd do the show and then go back home to your mum's house. You know, it wasn't fancy, it wasn't glamorous. So I was, that was always quite jarring for me and I, that's where I think I started to feel like um a bit detached from everything like wow they're shiny and perfect and amazing and I'm this sort of average kid who's just ended up in this weird job and I started to see myself as something very separate to the the world I was in and again it didn't cause me any anxiety or, or any trauma but I think at 19 when I then started doing sort of Saturday kids tv which is a bit older a bit more exposed and also top of the pops that's where I think I started to struggle a bit mm. and feel wildly out of control, actually. Yeah, because I think you you talk a lot about um, this inner critic because, yeah, like you just mentioned, social media might not have been around at that time. So instead you had this like inner voice telling you that you weren't meant to be there and you weren't good enough to be there. I mean, actually, your inner critic, like from what I've read and what I've, you know, heard you say, your inner critic sounds like a bit of a knob. My inner critic is so loud yes. and noisy. Yes. And I, I, you know, at 41, I'm much more aware of it, but I don't feel like I'm um, any better at mitigating it, if mm. I'm honest. But I have an awareness so I can distinguish, okay, this is just that tape that I'm really used yeah. to hearing. This isn't the truth because I you know I'll beat myself up today about you know more everyday stuff like um oh you know I couldn't do the school run that day or or just silly things to do with the kids that I worry about am I being a good enough parent am I doing the best that I could do or or am I doing well at work am I putting as much effort in as I could I could be better and it's just those two points in my life there is a sort of constant um, commentary going on in my head but I think the work one's been exacerbated by <laughs> social media and 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 the press really that mm -hmm. that's that's where things got super dark for me was when that element came in and it is a nasty nasty world and it still is now it's not any better it hasn't got any kinder mm -hmm. it's grim and it is absolutely confidence shredding yeah and it's just ignites the flame of self-loathing quicker than than anything. It's it's mad. So I think that's where it really started to get ugly was the whole, oh, right, there's like grown-ass adults who have a paid job sat at a computer typing out how much they don't like me or whatever the commentary might have been. Yeah. And that, I still I still don't deal well with that. Whereas I can probably with social media find some logic behind you know not reading into it I think with the press it just still feels like so out of control and hideous so vicious um do you do you look at some headlines mm. sometimes or do you do you hear or do you do you see how other people are now in the firing line and kind of like what, what do you think about them and how do you almost like want to shield them like how how do we how do you protect that 
how do you protect yourself from it? I don't. I don't think you can, no. and that's the terrifying thing about yeah. it is that that when a journalist, and it could be a single journalist, makes up a headline or an angle of a story, and it's out there, you're then it's you're totally out of control because everyone else's reaction is you know, going to be bespoke to them depending on how they're feeling that day and if they want to use you as a bit mm. of a target because it's easy and they can dehumanise you. And But then the story's out there. And then, you know, careers are ruined by that. And, you know, the newspapers have done that to so many people and worse, as we know, yeah. and worse. Yeah. And, and it still hasn't got better. And I still don't understand how the people that write these articles can do it and feel okay about themselves. Like... You know, we've all said things that we regret and we've all bitched about people and said silly things. We've all got sort of regret around that, I'm sure, if we were all really honest with ourselves. I certainly have. Hands up. There's loads of things I wish I hadn't said and done. But when you're paid to do it and you're doing it regularly and you know what the fallout can be because we've seen people very publicly completely fall apart and let's cut to the chase, die, mm -hmm. How can they still keep doing it? I, I just, I will never, ever understand it. And it's certainly in my early 30s and late 20s, actually, contributed to an all very, very vulnerable state of um, of, men, of poor mental health. You know, it, it absolutely affected me in, in the worst possible way. Yeah. Um, and, and I still don't know how to react to it rationally, you know, because I, I could sit there with a sensible friend like you who might say, look, just don't listen to it. It doesn't matter, whatever. But I I feel like I don't have the, I don't know, the tools in place to go, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, this will blow over. I, It's a physical reaction mm -hmm. to, even if I see my PR guy's number come up on my phone, I'm already properly having an anxiety attack I, d I won't pick up the phone I'm mm -hmm. like can you just text me if this is awful or if it's just a question so I have a really disproportionately over-the-top reaction to any of that um but it is it's horrible it's a horrible horrible world but is it that disproportionate because if for me I I I would feel exactly the same and I uh I have no doubt that so many people in the same position as you have that reaction to because you're human and we all make mistakes. We all do these things. And the fact that you ha bear the brunt because it's because you happen to be more in the limelight than fucking me going to the shops yeah. every day. I mean, you know, just like, you're it's right. I think, you know, maybe it's not disproportionate. I don't know. I think sometimes... I have said to myself, probably because I have quite a harsh inner critic, like, oh, God, you know, people are going through far worse, just sort of crack on with it. But when I can look at the lows that I've been in and the the place that it's taken me to, and I mean, you know, at the start of my 20s, I literally had no confidence, like none, to the point where I started to, you know, not do a lot of the, and I still don't do a lot of the jobs that I used to do because I don't, I mean, part of it is because I just don't feel um, pulled towards that work anymore. Yeah. I don't It doesn't excite me like it used to. Mm. But mm -hmm. there is a large element that is I, I don't want to be exposed in that way and out there in that way for everybody to 
grab a part of me and make up their mind about who I am or what I stand for or I, I just I can't stomach it. I'm not built for it at all. I don't know if many people are. I, I think I know a few people who sort of are and they can deal with it and they can kind of go, oh, I don't care. This is part of the job. I am not built for it. I am sensitive and take things very personally and already have this acerbic voice in my head. I don't need that to be pumped up by other voices, yeah. quite frankly. So, yeah, I... I don't I don't deal well with it at all but I think that's you know good that you can acknowledge that and you can kind of go well take action step away from it like a lot of people might struggle on forever and ever more because they feel like that's it for them that's the only thing that'll give them that boost that they need but also hate it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But you've got to look at your own ego, which I still have to do every day because I could easily watch um, someone on a TV show or, you know, doing something cool and think, oh, well, I'm failing. I'm not doing very well. Am, am I? I'm not doing that. I wasn't asked to do that. Um, and then I have to go, OK, if you were offered that job, would you want to do it? And a part of my ego goes, yeah, I want to be asked. And the other bit goes, oh, I really wouldn't actually want to do the job bit and have the exposure bit. And I have to constantly check myself with that. Um, and, you know, I am still putting myself out there to an extent. It feels much more comfortable because I've created my own little world out of necessity where I can still use the skill set that I've acquired over the last 25 years. I can still do the creative bit that really floats my boat, but I'm not out out there to the point where I'm being followed by paparazzi. I mean, my life is far too boring to be followed by paps. Like back in the day, I, I couldn't leave the house without there being a man following me. Like I could be in the middle of a park on a run and someone would jump out of bush. It was horrific. Now, what are they going to catch me like putting the bins out? It Luckily, I'm so boring that there is nothing to follow or document. And I am so grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that takes guts also to kind of say, oh, I need that ego boost, but actually, nah, this is way better for me. I need to step away from this. Like, I think it's brave, really brave. Well, I guess it was sort of, I had to look at like, is this making me happy? And if I really like sat and wrote a list, the stuff that makes me feel really good is writing is brings me more joy than anything and I'm working on two writing projects at the moment and I couldn't be happier than when I'm with my laptop on my own writing I couldn't be happier and interviewing people which I luckily get to do in this format um and then there's other bits and bobs that you know you do to kind of keep everything gelled together and working that maybe is less driven by sort of passion, but you know it's worth putting the work in because it brings all the projects together and helps sort of cement them. But if I look at all the sort of stuff where you would get a tantalizing, you know, 10 minutes of everyone saying you're amazing or you look amazing or I saw you on that show, I know that's going to last for that 10 minutes mm -hmm. and then it's gone. Like it's not, it's not everlasting. So then you have to do it again. And I just think, oh, I, I just don't, I just can't put myself through that anymore. I just really can't, and, you know, and then every now and again, your ego gets bashed. Cause like, I remember once I was doing this TV thing, probably only a couple of years ago. And it was a very, you know, rare sort of TV appearance for me. And the lighting guy was someone I'd worked with for years, lovely bloke. And he went to me, 
God, I haven't seen you for years. Do you still work these days? And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh my God. I work harder than I've ever worked. But I just thought, I'm not even, like, he doesn't know. So I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. bits and bobs, bits and bobs. And like, obviously my ego is like, fuck you. I'm working like double mm-hmm. what I used to work doing all these projects and the and the stuff that I do behind the scenes. But I thought, I just don't need to get into it. I was like, yeah, yeah. It's all good. So, you know, again, a little moment to just ground and go, okay, that for one second felt sort of weirdly painful, but why? Oh, because my ego needs to be like seen and heard Uh and actually it doesn't matter. So, you know, um, it's not like, yeah, I've cracked it. I don't need, I don't need outside validation. Like I think we all seek it Mm -hmm. on varying levels. I'm just probably a little bit more self-aware these days as to why I'm doing it. Am I just feeling a bit shit that day? Yeah. Do I feel insecure? Is posting something or being on a TV show actually going to fix a problem? No, yeah, of course it's not. And it, it's just almost kind of sad and a good reality check to kind of go, this person lives in such a warped world where what works seem like the only work that it seems valid in his eyes is telework or being seen out in the world in that space. So the fact that you are almost enlightened and know that there's more to life than that is great now, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. There's so much more. Like, I really put it into practice. Like, say if I see um, on Instagram, um, you know, people out at a big show busy, red carpety type thing, and they're looking amazing, great dress, yada, yada. There is, I think, like for most people, a bit that goes oh, fuck, I didn't get invited to that. I, I, I don't, I, I'm in a track, I look disgusting right now. I've got a gross tracksuit on. I've got all like, like fucking hummus down my trousers or whatever it is. And you start to feel a bit shit about yourself. And in those moments, I go, right, if someone said to me now, right, put this dress on, do your makeup, get in this car and go to that event, would you want to go? No, I'm sat with my kids on the sofa watching, we just watched that amazing new film, Slumberland. I couldn't be happier in my dirty top, what? And, and I'm not just sort of saying this to like sound all virtuous. I, I would rather do that than anything. I don't actually want to be at that show busy thing, but it sort of looks all shiny and great on Instagram. And then you go, actually, I don't want to, I don't want to be there. <laughs> I really don't. Can we go back to like, uh, okay, so your mental health and being aware that, you, you know, you have depression and, you, you you suffer with things like insomnia and panic attacks. You are also now aware that you're not very good at asking for help. Um, so how does that work then? Well, that is very much work in progress. You know, I haven't had a, a massive period of depression for years and years. You know, mm-hmm. initially there was a big, big block that took me a long time to come out of because there were circumstances in my life that were very tricky to navigate and a lot of outside noise and a lot of abuse from the press absolute abuse that I don't know why I put up with it actually at the time I was just very not in a good headspace but people being vile about me actually and I felt so awful and it took me a long time to come out of that I don't know what the timeline would be because it's very difficult to notice the moments where you go oh yeah that might have been the end of that period I I just don't know but I I still deal with anxiety and and anxiety 
slash panic attacks, less so actually recently, but my nemesis still is sleep anxiety. That for me, I, I don't know how to combat it. I actually spoke to Giovanna about this about two days ago because we were talking about the big Copperfield trek that they've just been on and I was quizzing her about it on the phone and sounded amazing and she was like oh I really want you to come on one and I was thinking what is it that is stopping me and I I was very honest with her I said look I this sleep anxiety thing for me is quite debilitating because if I get into the really nitty-gritty and you know me I'm very honest I've I've got nothing to hide Mm -hmm. my sleep anxiety manifests like this if I'm not in my bed at home where everything is exactly the same as I'm used to with my same eye mask, my earplugs, my pillows, like the whole thing. I'm in my home. If I'm staying somewhere else or God forbid I had to share a bed or a room with someone, I I cannot mentally cope with that at this point in my life. So that leads to um, this weird, I don't know if it's like an... Uh, it's like a weird compulsion that I have to keep going to the loo and I don't even need the loo, but on a bad day, like I stayed in a hotel recently and that cycle went on every few minutes for two hours. <laughs> I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I just like, like a gym workout. I'm like, go to the toilet, come back to bed a minute later. Nope. Gonna have to go again. And it, I can't, I feel like I can't control that, that compulsion to go. It's, really odd and I haven't cracked that one in therapy or with any of the tools that I have that one for me is still a biggie and so I said to G unless I crack this I don't know how I could be in a tent because I would be the person in the tent with me would be literally going mental because I don't see how I would feel something about safety I don't know like if I'd feel safe uh to to be able to shut off from the world and go to sleep it's really odd. So that I still, I, I'm still, you know, and Jesse's away at the moment and that always throws me. Yeah. So I've slept so poorly for the last week because I've just got that compulsion or tick or whatever it is. And, um, and I just can't get myself to sleep. Or if the kids wake up in the night, which is all the time, mm. I then can't get back to sleep because this thing kicks in of, oh, you probably won't go back to sleep now. Yeah. And then the toilet thing comes in and it's like, oh my God. It's, so that one still is, that's the one that I'm dealing with probably more potently presently out of all of the things. I, I tend to do less work now that causes panic attacks because it is really, that's quite a work-based thing, panic attacks. Yeah. It's not really so much a life real life thing it's a work thing yeah i can hear your cat uh, yeah um, she's a bell end um ignore <laughs> <laughs> oh god i love her meow feed me she's got a question <laughs> i mean you've literally been fed okay you want to say hi or you want to say hi no what happened she said <laughs> you fucking ass she's <laughs> Hello. Oh, she's so lovely. Hello. I've locked I've locked Simon the cat out so he can't disturb me because oh. otherwise he would be in here going mad at me. Well, I can't. She doesn't go out. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and ignore, and Neil's gonna have to do really well at like getting rid of the sound. Um, <laughs> what I wanted to say is like also if you are not sleeping on this trek, then you won't be good for walking. 
either. So I do, I do get it, no. and I'm not going to try and convince you. I'll let G do, G do that. But it's interesting if I didn't, exactly. if I didn't know you, I the first thing I'd be like, yeah, but there are so many tools, and there are drugs like sleeping pills, and you could try meditation, and you could try like you know what's your sleep hygiene like before you go to bed and all that shit that we now know about but I know for a fact you would have tried all these things so ah, oh, it must be so frustrating yeah sometimes it makes it worse because sometimes you go like say I do and you know I do a lot of these things as you know like breath work with the wonderful mm. Rebecca Dennis that you've um you've met and worked with who is game changing and she's helped me massively but say I start doing a breathing technique when I'm in that state after five minutes when it hasn't worked, I start to feel worse. Like, oh, well, even that didn't work. So I'm really fucked now because I did the breathing thing. And that's how that's how mental I am that I can't even go to sleep after doing a full on. So I then start to sort of beat myself up because I think at night things are so much worse, even if you don't have anxiety. You know, it's dark. Everyone else is asleep. You imagine that everyone in the in the country's asleep and you're the only one that's awake and it's quiet. There's no distractions and it's like, Oh, my, it's a noisy place up there. And, you know, I I love my brain because it can do brilliant, creative things. And I'm, I'm the sort of person that luckily I have ideas all day, work ideas, thoughts, questions. Like my brain is a really creative place, but it doesn't switch off. So, you know, I do I do my yoga. I, I'm, I'm on off with the meditation and that is probably part of the problem that, I, I, you know, it'd be good to do more. But I do really use that breath work in the yoga and I go on big, long meditative walks. I went on one this morning after the school run. But yeah, I think it's just that is still at this point, and I don't think it's forever, but at this point, having kids and with work being busy and just all the sort of demands of the modern world, sleep is, yeah, it's still the the one for me that I um that I, I really struggle with. Yeah. Do you think it was um got worse or was triggered after you had kids? Because Ma used to be able to sleep. My my twin Ma, for anyone that doesn't know. Um she used to be able to sleep and ever since having Herbie, she needs a bit like you to have everything like she needs to go to bed at a certain time, otherwise she stresses about not having enough sleep and just like and yeah. like yeah. she but then she overthinks it and I just think, well just don't even just try not to think about it. Just like just go to bed. Yeah, and, I do that. And because I do that. Yeah. I overthink it. Yeah. And so it's that overthinking, because then you're thinking about the sleep that you might not get and that is preventing you from sleeping, even though you haven't even attempted totally. to sleep yet. And it's just like Oh, I, I can't yeah. get my head around it because I um not to brag or anything, but I'm such a good sleeper. Um, and I feel like <laughs> I, 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 I used to be, I used to be able to sleep anywhere. Like I, in my twenties, I spent the whole of my twenties on a transatlantic flight. You know, I was just constantly mm. in the States working and then back here. I didn't deal with jet lag. I was just like sleeping wherever I, wherever I was on a plane or a, in a chair, wherever. So I think it's hard to determine what the catalyst was because I it's all a bit of a blur and I never get too focused on the sort of timeline thing. But I sort of had this big period of depression and it was in and amongst the time when I had Rex. And I genuinely, because I think it's really affected my memory, actually, going through stuff that wasn't very pleasant. I can't remember what happened first. Did I have Rex first? Did this all kick off when I was pregnant? I genuinely, I don't have any desire to go and look back into it, to be honest. But 
it all kind of happened around the same time. But I, weirdly, I was still a good sleeper until the anxiety didn't kick in at all until I was about 20, uh, 35. So for five years, I was probably sort of, you know, dealing with some big low moods and and and, and very low self-esteem. But anxiety, didn't have it. Didn't have it at all. Slept well, absolutely fine. And then really it was kind of, I think, after I had honey, we're out of the blue. It was literally my first panic attack was totally and utterly out of the blue. I was driving on the motorway with my mate Claire and I just said, I, I f- I'm feeling really odd. And I genuinely didn't know what the hell was happening, but I went really hot. I opened all the windows and then I couldn't catch my breath. And then I started, my vision was going out of line. So I couldn't focus on what what was in front of me and how far things were away. So I pulled over, totally freaked out. And I just couldn't get my shit together to get back on the motorway. So we, we called the AA, who very kindly sort of came and rescued us. Um, and from that point on, from that day, for whatever reason, they kicked in on that day. They were absolutely ferocious for months. I was getting them several times a day, every day. And I was covering for this live TV show at the time. And I was in a state of, like, I was felt like I was leaving my body. And I carried on doing the show. I was like, if it was me today, I'd say, I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing it. I'm staying at home today. But I sort of pushed through and did it. And these panic attacks were really potent and regular for months. Um, and now I don't really do those sorts of jobs. So it, and it, but, but I couldn't drive on the motorway for five years. Mm-hmm. I started driving on the motorway again last year. And, and I've, I, I want to say this for people out there that have this motorway anxiety specifically, because I've met a lot of people over the mm-hmm. years that have ha- that have it. Mm-hmm. You can crack it. Mm-hmm. Like I've cracked it. Mm-hmm. I still get a little thing where I go, oh, and I go, yeah. no, no, no. Nope, and I have to almost shut off this part of my brain. You have to go, no, no, I'm not, that part of my brain's not opening today. And then I can do it. And it has been, I feel so proud of myself. I, I feel so utterly chuffed that I, because this one was debilitating again in the terms of, couldn't bloody go anywhere. If Jesse was away, I just couldn't go anywhere. But now I'm I'm back on the motorway. It, I can see my friends that live in Surrey. I can go and visit my parents. It's like... I feel so grateful that I'm back on the motorway it's, and, and it is possible. I specifically used EMDR therapy for that and it was very, very helpful, very helpful. I tried EMDR recently, actually. It is fascinating, isn't it? Have you, the the person that I had, who I did it with online, she actually gave me some soundtracks to listen to after that because I haven't, done any more sessions but it's so fascinating that makes your eyes because if anyone doesn't know it's about like basically you use you using your eyes to to almost distract this part of your brain and then you have a you have a therapist an emdr therapist who's kind of going look over here look over there and it's just like you're in in a way you're rewiring something to make your brain not behave in that certain way or have that certain trigger again in in the future and it is fascinating how that works that's so good it's so good that it worked for you 
Yeah, it really did. And I, you know, I should probably revisit it for the sleep thing because I, I don't doubt that it would really help that. But I was really kind of focusing on that specific anxiety because it was becoming sort of problematic and it really helped. And actually, um, a friend of mine, when he had seen that I'd Instagrammed about having this motorway anxiety, he got in touch and was like, oh my God, I don't really talk about it, but I have that. And he hadn't driven the motorway for like 18 years. And I put him in touch with an EMDR specialist that I know and he's he's back driving on the on the motorway. It's so cool. It's so cool and wonderful to show that the brain has this neuroplasticity and we can rewire it and retrain it and and make it, you know, do what we need it to do. It just obviously requires a lot of work. Sometimes you have to go to painful places to do that work. It's not like fun or easy or like you do it once and it's done. But I do believe that with practice and patience, you can crack these phobias and fears and and um, blocks, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, let's. I want to focus a bit on the glitter. So obviously, you know, you've you've had various different mental health issues over the time and you've tried various things to help you and some have worked some haven't and it's an ongoing sort of an ongoing journey with figuring things out but also an ongoing journey with and I think having read your book and knowing you for for so long it's it's also working out who you are and why these things certainly get driven in certain directions and your spirit and like that ongoing cultivation of your spirituality um would would you say it's like happening alongside your healing oh yeah w- without a doubt you know some of it out of ne- necessity that i've wanted to try new things and broaden my mind but actually the more i sort of walk down that path the more i just feel right in that space learning and cultivating some sort of deeper connection with the people in my life and the environment around me and just life itself, I guess, that feels great. And now more often than not informs what I do in my working life as well as my life. You know, it's kind of informing it all. The ideas kind of start in the healing bit of life. You know, I'm kind of... That's why I guess I feel so lucky with Happy Place. I'm never coming from the the point of view with Happy Place. Like, guys, I've got it all sorted here. I've cracked it. Listen to me and you too can feel amazing every day. Like, I'm very much trying things out, some days feeling wicked, some days struggling. And it's really lovely to do that en masse with other people who I feel like I'm in this giant conversation with whether it's the podcast or the festivals or the app or any of the other projects we're doing or just on Instagram you know having these these chats and 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 what what feels like a real privilege and I guess part of this the glitter the glittering aspect is I could be out walking down the street or milling around the happy place festival or wherever I might be doing a talk somewhere and due to the change of work that I do now since I started Happy Place people come up to me and off the bat share their story with me and 
at the deepest level, you know, I hear about someone's acute pain or beautiful healing or whatever it might be before we've even said hi. Mm. It, we're straight in. And that feels weird, incredible, an honour. Like, I feel like I'm properly meeting people. And that, I will never, ever get over that or feel flippant about it or blasé about it it's remarkable Mm -hmm. and I did not foresee that happening in my life I I couldn't have imagined a a connection like that Mm -hmm. with strangers it's um it's remarkable so that that massively drives me forward and definitely cancels out any of the negatives that might still be floating around the edges you know who gives a fuck if someone's talking shit about me online or some idiot journalist is saying something cruel. I can walk up to somebody and have an amazing, deep conversation and walk away feeling like I've learned something, like I've properly connected with someone. That makes all of it worth it. Mm-hmm. So that is that is like the shiniest of glitter. Yes. And can I just tell everyone that I witnessed that happening at your festival this year where someone was sharing this information of, I mean, I don't know what the story was. It looked like a really deep and meaningful conversation that you guys were having. Um, and I just wonder, and obviously I text you afterwards, because it's, it's a lot. It's amazing, but it's a lot to kind of absorb. And because you have said yourself, like you're, you are like a sponge, you absorb other people's energy so much. And, and it, I think it's a gift to have that, to be so intuitive and to to really feel things deeply. I think it's, I think probably for you, sometimes it feels like a curse, but it is also a gift. And I'm sure you recognize that, but um, it must be also so exhausting for someone who does take things on so much. Yeah, I think the the, the Happy Place Festival is is the perfect example because we had um, the London Festival and the Manchester one, and we had 6,000 people at each event. And I was walking around as much as I could, meeting people, wanting to hear what their feedback was on the festival itself so we can make it better and just to chat to people and basically meet the Happy Place audience because they're integral to all the projects. If we don't have an audience that are communicating with us, engaged with what we're doing, we don't exist. So I was walking around the whole time chatting to people and having these incredibly deep conversations. And you know, people were telling me some pretty horrendous stuff that happened to them personally, you know, awful things, awful things. Mm. And we cried together and we hugged. I, I, I do feel everything. So I feel deeply moved when someone tells me a story. And, it, and it, it's a stranger. I never met this person, but I feel deeply moved. I think I've always been that way inclined. Even as a kid, I, I get, can get very deeply emotional about anything. And it felt absolutely magical and beautiful during those two-day events and I was still flying high on the Monday after both but like clockwork about probably 48 hours after I felt it's so hard to describe sort of flawed and sort of flattened and um and I didn't really know what to do with all of it, I think, is is the outcome. I've been told all these stories. I'd hopefully offered some sort of empathy or at least made that person feel heard and seen, which I think is what a lot of us are looking for. And I really 
want to give people that experience. But I felt depleted of everything. And I wouldn't swap it for the world. Mm -hmm. I'll do exactly the same next year. But I think I'll, I'll expect that that will happen because, you know, the stuff that I, I was told is just, you just think, God, people are going through so much. There's so many, you know, there's a lot of beauty and light out there, but there's obviously a lot of dark and terrible things happening to people. And it's heartbreaking. And I, I just felt a bit hopeless. So I don't know what to do. Like, I think then a week later, when I have been able to process moments like that, I go, right. We have more work to do and what is it? There are, there are people struggling and we've got a platform and we've got the resources and I know the people. What the hell are we going to do about it? And that's where I get the fire in my belly again. But I think I had to go through that period before I was like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with all these stories and all this stuff. And it really, really hit. I was just peak exhaustion, I think. But, but then, you know, you get your fire in the belly and you, you get back to work on thinking up ideas, I guess. See, I told you we cover a lot of ground. So you'll need to make sure you listen to next week's episode for the rest of our chat. But for now, let's remember our need to have a really good laugh, to be silly and joyful with friends. Perhaps also work out what your inner critic is saying and asking how valid any of that is. I absolutely hate that Fern's self-esteem has in the past been shattered by the press for no gain other than to sell more papers. I don't think it's got any better. I mean, right now it feels worse than ever. The press have never been more vile. In a way, I'm, I'm so proud of Fern for her resilience, but also to finally uncover and realize what no longer makes her happy and to step away from all of that. In part two of our chat, we dive a little bit deeper into how Fern eventually managed to glitter her turd and the lessons she's learnt along the way. <laughs> There's probably also more interruptions for my cat too, so please don't miss it. So see you then. Bye for now. Oh.